If you're a veteran or military spouse of another state startup or small business and feel like you're making it up as you go, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneurial experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Labs branding team. One topic that consistently comes up in my conversations with aspiring entrepreneurs is wanting to pursue entrepreneurship through acquisition, a fancy way of saying buying a business as opposed to building one from scratch. There's an old saying that there are multiple ways to skin a cat, and as great as it is to start a business, buying one can be just as impactful. To discuss the process, I invited on the transition Jeff Evenson, an Army veteran, business coach, and acquisition entrepreneur with experience purchasing multiple businesses as well as working with others to do the same. Over the years, Jeff's acquired hair salons, a pillow company, and a manufacturing business, just to name a few. On the show, we discuss why buying a business may or may not be the right fit for you, how to spot a good deal, and what pitfalls you should avoid along the way. Before we jump into the show, be sure to subscribe to The Transition on your favorite podcast hosting platform and kindly leave us a review. Reviews are helpful in getting the word out about the podcast to other veteran entrepreneurs and military spouses. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by the MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, MetLife Foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoyed today's show and that accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Jeff. Welcome to The Transition. What's going on, sir? Thanks, Mike. Iron Mike, good to see you. Happy to be here, my friend. You all are in for a treat today. Jeff is a friend, a mentor, a business partner, but he's so much more. He's one of the first people I ever came across who had successfully bought a business, at least that I knew of. Because for a lot of us, when we come in this, you know, veteran entrepreneurial ecosystem, there's a lot of talk about, you know, startups and you know, starting a business. But up until recently, I didn't hear a lot of people talking about, you know, entrepreneurship through acquisition as a means of creating generational wealth, creating impact, you know, using the leadership that we developed in the military. And so you've been championing that from the very beginning. And Jeff and I originally connected and ran, I think around 2019 through the Lions Pride, which was a coaching organization I was a part of. And Jeff was a member and then he became a coach. And then we've since been part of uh, Flawless Acceleration. So, but he's got a big background. He's going to bring you up to speed on it. And let me tell you, all his time is legitimately worth $10,000 a minute. So, Jeff, without further ado, please introduce yourself to the people and uh, let them know how you got to where you are currently with coaching and entrepreneurship through acquisition. Well, dude, thanks, Mike. I appreciate the, the intro. So, my name is Jeff Evenson. I'm a 1990 graduate of West Point. Originally from St. Louis, landed at West Point through one way or another and, and graduated from West Point in 1990. I spent a very short time, three years active duty in the engineers within the Army and then came out of the active duty Army and, and went to grad school to earn my MBA here in St. Louis. Spent the first 10 or 12 years of my career, my post-Army career and postgraduate school career in the finance area. So I was trading stocks. I was managing pension funds ultimately landed in a big consumer product company. And I was 
initially part of their pension department, but I moved around in there and landed ultimately in a part of the business that was doing mergers and acquisitions amongst uh, distributors of their product. And that was where I really learned, you know, you, you, you learn all this theoretical stuff about financial statements and, and that sort of thing. And, but that's where I learned how business owners really use their financials to, to own and operate their businesses. And so that was super eye-opening for me. <clears throat> at the same time, uh, you know, coincidentally, at, the, at that time, I was also married to a woman who was, who was running a hair salon, of all things. I don't have a whole lot of hair, but uh, she did. And so she was helping operate the business. She was an attorney. And we approached the uh, owner of the business and asked if, they would, if she would sell the business to us. So in 2008, May of 2008, we bought a, uh, a, a hair salon that was at the time doing about three and a half, four million dollars in, in sales. So that's a pretty big hair salon operation. Had about 65 employees. The next step from there was to, to head straight into a, a, a recession which was an interesting place to be with a high-end discretionary income kind of business. We were able to grow through that and then ultimately opened a second location of that business in 2011. We bought a, one of our suppliers in 2015, a relatively small manufacturing company that was doing about five or 600,000 in sales. So it was relatively small. And then ultimately I exited all three of those companies through a divorce in 2018. At the time that I exited the companies, we had about seven, seven and a half million in sales and combined, and we're probably leading about 115 people. Shortly after the divorce, I jumped into another deal with a guy that I went to West Point with, and we acquired a machine shop, precision machine shop that was doing, that was working with a bunch of aerospace customers and Engineer, big engineering firms and that sort of thing. So <clears throat> we bought that company in May of 2019, and you know we learned <laughs> learned the, the machine shop business, right? And then in December of 2020, I exited that company through a buyout, and uh, that's when I really started to, in earnest, help you know with the Lion Sprite as a coach. And ultimately launched my own business that I call the Thayer Gate Project, um, where I am meeting people at the front gate, helping them navigate the, the business acquisition process. And, and it's been really fun to, to help people do that. I, I also, like Mike said, we're partners on Flawless Acceleration and we're coaching folks who are business owners. So I kind of handle the coaching from, from the, hey, I've got an idea, I want to buy a company through the close and into how do I operate this company now that I, you know, dog catches car, what do I do now? So, so that's been, you know, really fulfilling a goal of mine, which is to help other people build personal wealth. And I think the best way to build generational wealth is to do that through business ownership. I think you can do that faster than working for somebody else. And my goal is to, is to build a billion dollars of generational wealth for other people in the next 25 years. This is how you can tell this ain't your first rodeo on a podcast. I tried to play Jeff, y'all, before we went live. I was like, have you done a podcast before? He's like, I've done a few. That's a very polished story. And uh, in the words of our friend and fellow West Point graduate, BJ Kramer, that's a lot to unpack there, which we're going to get into it and how it applies to our listeners that are either considering an ETA, that's the short acronym for Entrepreneurship Through Acquisition, or this is your first time learning about it. But before we do, Jeff, I got to ask you to take off your armor. 
So <laughs> one of the things we do is we get vulnerable on this platform because, you know, everybody loves to talk about how amazing entrepreneurship is. Mm. It's all sunshine and rainbows. But I know that that 15 to 20 year journey you just talked about, in addition to the divorce, wasn't an easy road. Yeah, you're right, Mike. I mean, you know, we have a lot of things. Uh, a lot of times we talk about all the the glories, the glory stuff that happens in business ownership. But I would say that my biggest pain point and the and the thing I've learned the most from over the years has been, you know, partnerships and how to how to create partnerships that are actually win-win partnerships and how to be cautious about getting entering into them and making sure that that everybody's on the same page and keeping everybody on the same page and and showing grace when people aren't able to you know flow into the business in a moment and and they need to ebb for that moment and and then being available for them when they want to flow into it. So I think it's super important to to really craft your partnerships in a way that that is good for all the parties and and is, is something that's going to stand up and and be resilient for when things don't go the way that you expect them, expect them to. Where did you first learn about partnerships? Was that like a class y'all took at, you know, Washington U? Because I feel like everybody's like, I got a, I got an idea for a business. And then they ask a buddy and like, we should go in together. But you know, it's a whole story when you're out there blocking and tackling in the day to day. And like you said, account for people's seasons of life. You know, right. people go through divorces, they deal with, you know, death and divorce and yada, yada, yada. And it's like hard to think about that stuff when you're going in. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, I, the one thing I can tell you about a partnership is it's going to be different the day after you sign the paperwork. You know, everybody, everybody goes into partnerships and they think, oh man, the, the biggest problem you have when you're building a partnership is how are we going to split this big pile of money that we're going to have? And they don't really contemplate what happens when, you know, any of those D's happen, right? Divorce, disability, death, disinterest, you know, disappearance. Those are the things that, that can happen. And they happen in life, right? And people move through their seasons in their life. And, and they really, unless, the, unless you think about that and prepare for that, and it's going to happen, you know, those eventualities are going to happen. And unless you have a, a well-formed partnership from the beginning, you could be in a real trap on the day that, some, that somebody changes their mind or, or things, things just change. I mean, I was partners with my now ex-wife. I was partners with a, a guy that I was, you know, had been friends with for 35 years. Neither of us are partners anymore. And, you know, fortunately, I learned a lot from the first partner dissolution that I, that I applied in my second partner partnership agreement. But, you know, to answer your initial question, where did I learn about it? Man, I learned it on the streets, bro. Like, like I, like there, yeah. there wasn't anything that really taught me that in, in B school or, or, you know, any, anywhere yeah. that, you know, I could read about it all day, but until you actually get punched in the mouth, man, it's a, it's a different game. I think both life is humbling. And I think entrepreneurship is really, it's like the slaying the dragon journey, to be honest. Yeah. And so it's going to be super, super humbling. So you get these bumps and bruises. So by the time, you know, you stand tall, right, you beat up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm going to say about Jeff, y'all. Just like I get excited talking about boxing and branding, when you were in the process of acquiring uh, the manufacturing shop, mm-hmm. I just remember the excitement in your face when you were talking about it, even yeah. at that tactical event, which was our quarterly plan and retreat. You were all energized. Right. That is your we call it zone of genius. And you've been able to caveat that over and over again. And I think this is a great opportunity to share with our listeners about, you know, who is a good fit for an ETA? 
And I'm going to preface it with this. We talked about seasons of life. Mm-hmm. We know a lot of transitioning veterans. Some of them, some of you out there are a little younger. But some of us are getting out. We got wives. We got kids. You know, people can't exactly afford the kind of startup grind of sleeping on couches and eating ramen. And I've heard you say multiple occasions that you've never had to pay for your business, right? <laughs> you've always been able to structure deals. And so let's, let's break it down at the beginning. Who is ETA for? Yeah, well, I'd say that, you know, ETA is certainly not for the faint of heart. I think a lot of times we talk about buying a business and it's, and it's really simple, right? You buy the business, you grow the business, you sell the business for more than you bought it for. This formula is easy. Well, you know, there is this whole, you know, first of all, there's the, the challenge that goes into actually going through the acquisition itself and getting from, you know, a conversation with the seller all the way to the closing table. There are so many things that can go wrong in that process. You've got to have resilience. You've got to have some emotional IQ on how to deal with a person who's frankly making a transition that they probably have never made before. Most, most business owners, this is the biggest deal of their life and they've never done it before. So, you know, not <laughs> respecting that, I should say, and, and really thinking about the, the legacy that you're building on and really honoring what this business owner has done is is really super important because you have to build a ton of rapport going through the the business acquisition process even before you get in front of employees even before you get the deal done that that rapport building is so important in the in the overall so i would say you know anybody can buy a business i think that you have to have a couple a uh, couple factors one is resilience and grit to get through the deal process and and two is to have a little bit of a short memory, you know, a little bit of a, the ability to go to bed at night with a, with a ton of debt hanging over your head in most cases, because, you know, a lot of people, if they psychologically, if they walk away from a deal table and they've, and they've just signed their name to a $2 million uh, seller or $2 million uh, banknote, that's got a personal guarantee associated with it, which means that if I fail, if this business fails, if, and if I fail on this this transaction, they're going to take everything I got, and that's that takes a, a certain kind of person who's able to to do that. I don't know if it's if it's dumb or if it's just like I said, short memory. But somehow or another, you have to be willing to you know to understand that you have to put your head on your pillow at night, knowing that you've got uh, you know buckets of of debt hanging over your head, and and that's just part of the game. So where does someone begin with the process? Because one thing I've noticed about buying businesses, at least the successful ones, mm-hmm. they don't seem to be that sexy. All the business owners I know that have bought business, they're running manufacturing. You know, there's a meme going around about all the Harvard business, Harvard MBAs want to buy an HVAC business, yeah, right. no website and right. no owner that's generating like $3 million a year in revenue. And I think what, it's, what this is saying to me is that when you start to go down the ETA route, it's almost like you got to set your ego aside. Right. Sure. You've got to kind of look at the numbers. You've got to look at the values more than just like, oh, this is like this is like a cool startup or something that I want to acquire as opposed yeah. to, hey, I want to you know, buy a business that I can lead and I can grow, potentially sell a little bit later. Or maybe I make it cash flow positive for my family and I. Yeah, right. So I would say that, you know, first and foremost, understanding what gives a business value is the first step. Right. That first step is. What is it about a business that makes it valuable? Is it a is it the, a flashy product? Is it a great marketing campaign? No, man. In the end, it is cash. If that business generates cash, it's worth something. 
if that business doesn't generate cash, in my eyes, it's not worth much, if anything. Some people will tell you that, oh, well, you know, like, I mean, let's talk WeWork, right? Never had a, never had a profit in, in however many years it was around. You know, I don't know how anybody could ever thought that that business was worth anything. But, you know, so the, so the real question comes down to, you know, what's a, what's a business worth? It's worth a multiple of the cash flow it can generate over the next, you know, three to five years. Okay. So, and the way, the only way I can tell what it, what it could generate in the next three to five years is by looking back the last three to five years and figuring out what it has generated in cash in the last three to five years. So by and large, the valuation piece of this is really related to show me your financial financials in the last three years. I, if I can see some consistency of how it's building cash or how it's generating cash, then I'm willing to pay a multiple of that cash. So let's just say for for ease of math's sake, you know, a company that's that's doing you know five million dollars in sales is generating five hundred thousand dollars a year in cash, and that the terminology is EBITDA if you know if you want to go into the accounting piece of it, but but it's generating five hundred thousand dollars a year in cash. If I have a good feeling that it's going to continue to do that for the next 10 years, then it's likely I'm willing to borrow, let's say, four times that $500,000 or $2 million. I'm willing to borrow $2 million to, to buy that company because I can pay that back in 10 years with that cash flow, that $500,000 a year cash flow. So I may have to be, I may have to spend two seventy-five dollars or three hundred dollars a year against my, my debt service. But if you do the math, like heck, after you know six, seven, eight years, if you're conservative and took that all that cash and plowed it into your debt service, you could own that business, you know, debt free. And if it's still producing five hundred thousand dollars in cash, you're in a great spot, right? You're just you're just in a business you don't owe anybody any money, and you're just generating five hundred grand a year. So, so that's the the premise that we're building on, right? The 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 idea of buying a company is really based on the premise. That I believe going forward, this company is going to generate some amount of cash, and it's somewhat predictable. That's why HVAC, carpet cleaning, you know, you know, name name the the home services type company, manufacturing, you know, some of those things you can look back five, ten, twenty years and see very, very consistent cash flows. And if that's the case, you know, I can have some confidence that going forward, you know, it's going to do the same. Now it's not going to be hockey stick growth. You know, the MBA, the Harvard MBAs may think that they're going to come in there and put a website onto an HVAC company and all of a sudden they're going to go from doing, you know, 2 million a year to 20 million. Like that's unlikely. You know, cuz HVAC companies are very regional and they're very, you know, local and so you have to be able to sell into residential and that sort of thing. So so in the end, understanding value is the first question. The second piece of the puzzle is you know, there are, like you said, there are tons of businesses for sale, but what am I really looking for as a buyer? And so I always coach people to, to create a target statement. What is that? What does that consist of? That target statement is, is going to talk about the size of the company, the industry the company's in, how that, uh, how that business works. Is it virtual? You know, does it have virtual employees? Does it have a brick and mortar location? Is it retail? Is it um, wholesale? Is it a distributor? You know, all those kind of traits that a business can have, how do we take those and turn it into a, a, a well-defined target of what we want to what we want to go buy? And then I take that target statement and now I go I gotta go tell the world. 
right? So, so I want to go tell the world that I've got, here's my target, guys. Here's what I'm looking for. And I want all the people on the planet that I know um, to, to help me find that, that company that fits that target statement. That was going to be my next question about how do you get skin in the game? Because you and I know a lot of people. They, yeah, man, I'm looking to buy a business. Five years later, mm-hmm. nothing's been done. Oh, yeah. Right? So how do you, like, for you recommending someone, if they're serious about it and they say, I'm looking to acquire a business, do you want them to have a timeline and say two to three years, you know, create that target statement? It's like, what do you advise them to do to, to get the ball moving? Well, I mean, you know, anybody that I coach, I generally tell them the same thing. I'm like, look, build that, you know, spend a little bit of time getting your head, your, your mindset in the right place. Am I the kind of person who's going to own and operate a business myself? You know, if I, you know, you mentioned this earlier, I think, I think business ownership, especially small business ownership is probably the most parallel thing that you can have to being a platoon leader in the, in the infantry or being a platoon leader in the army or, or, or Marine Corps. So, and what do I mean by that? It's small unit leadership, man. It's, and it's, and it's lonely at the top when you were an LT and you, and you got your, your infantry platoon, who do you turn to? Who, who's your peer? You don't have a peer in that platoon, right? And you're off doing a mission on your own as, as the LT and you've got, you know, who do you talk to? So I think it's very similar in business ownership that you've got this kind of loneliness at the top. And so, so part of, part of the journey is to understand that that's what you're heading toward. And then secondly, to, to take that, that target statement, I want, you know, I want you to spend two, three weeks, like really fine tuning a, a target statement. And then I want to take that target statement out to the marketplace. I want to talk to CPAs. I want to talk to attorneys. I want to talk to wealth managers. I want to talk to anybody who has interaction with a small business owner. You know, why a wealth manager? Because those guys are the ones talking to, to the 70, 70-year-old dude who's been running this business. And the 70-year-old dude is saying, hey, I'm tired. I'm ready to just, you know, monetize this thing that I've been working on for the last 25 years and go sit on a beach or go play golf or, or go fishing or whatever. Right? So they're the people, you know, the the attorneys and the and the wealth managers and the and the CPAs and and the insurance brokers and the, you know, those are the guys who have contact with those business owners on a regular basis. And I'm going to tell those people, hey, if you find a company that's in the aerospace manufacturing space, or it's in the, you know, HVAC, you know, space or, or whatever, I'm looking for it. And I wanted to have this, these kind of attributes. And now you've got, you know, you've been able to, to kick off and, and get people interested. Now, there are also business brokers out there who also want to know that whole story as well. And they're going to have a lot more deal flow in their hands. You want to you want to build relationships with those with those business brokers because they have they're the ones who are literally, you know, when businesses go up for sale, they're coming to the business brokers to, to sell their business. So I'm familiar with, you know, the the blue collar approach, right? You're working a full time job on the side. You're looking to acquire business. So you're doing it at nights and weekends, et cetera. But then I've also seen this thing emerge of search funds where it looks like investors who basically come in and serve as almost limited partners of some sort, and they will basically pay for you to find a business. So you spend your whole year just kind of looking for different businesses, et cetera, 
And then when you do find one that fits, they become a partner in that business. Can you break down or just introduce our audience to search funds? Because I might have just butchered that. No, no, you're you're on point. You know, search funds are an animal of people who have a lot of money. <laughs> and and they go and find business school kids who want to go buy their own business or, you know, people in transition who want to go buy their own business, but they just don't know how to go about it. So they'll gather some money, some investor money together and say, we're going to fund you. We're going to pay you hundred grand a year, 120 grand a year to go find a company to buy. So that, that search funder goes out and goes through the process and finds, and finds a company. They may be, they may call every, every HVAC company in, in Missouri to see if there's any for sale, or they may, you know, go in to, to a part of the, you know, the New England and try and find, you know, a manufacturing company and dial for dollars in those situations. In the end, when they find that company, those investors will come to the table and help them buy it. By and large, and I don't know that this is always the case, but what I've heard from the search funder space is that most of the time the search fund, the searcher ends up with five or 10% of the business, maybe 15, and maybe has some path for the next five years that gets them to, you know, 40, you know, 35 or 40 or something like that. So in my eyes, it's a very interesting way for a young, inexperienced person to go about buying uh, a business. But it also puts you, you know, remember, you know, money talks. So the the people with the money are going to be able to control the ownership scale in that business. And, and generally, they're going to say, OK, you know, you've bought the business. You know, we, we're going to go buy the business and you're going to own 5% and you're going to work your butt off. And then ultimately, you're going to own 15%. And that'll be good for you in the long run, but it's better for me as the as the guy who made the investment right. in the first place. So that's kind of my, you know, it, so there's a search funder piece of that. And then there's a self-funded track, if you will. You know, the self-funded track to me is more appealing because in the end, you know, even if I have some investors, I'm not going to give up, you know, 80% of the business to to have those investors part of the team. And then I think there's a third option over here which is basically partnering with a PE firm that's looking for an operating partner. They've already kind of found the business. They need a leader to take, to take charge, and they throw them some equity on top of a, a salary to do that. So the, and these are things that many of us didn't know about, right? I learned about this stuff. You know, we had Walker Dible come and speak. He wrote Buy Then Build. But I learned more from you just kind of talking about it, being on coaching calls, et cetera. And so you've got these three kind of potential opportunities out there that you can activate. You know, number one is you do it yourself and fund your own search. You potentially look for a search fund. And then option number three is come in as an operating partner. And, you know, we hit this at a high level, but you can do some deeper research as well. Now, I have a theory, Jeff, and I want you to tell me if I'm right or wrong. I think the reason search funds and ETAs look so appealing to a lot of post-MBA grads, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs is because they actually think it's going to be easier. It's like, oh, man, you know, starting a business is a grind. You got to go into your own savings and yada, yada, yada. I'll just I'll just go buy a business or I'll have somebody pay me to go buy a business and then everything is going to be OK. And then you check on them a few weeks later and they're really getting punched in the face. And this is what I know about buying businesses and the people in my personal network. It's all hands on deck. They got the mom, you know, they got the wife working, kids are working, 
I mean, everybody, they're calling up cousins and everything else to, <laughs> to, to work on that business. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, it's, it's definitely real. Right. I mean, like I said, they, by and large, the acquisition game is many times, you know, they, they really don't talk about that middle chunk, man, that, that, that com- complicated part of actually running the company. So what they do is they say, go find the company and, uh, you know, and, and then buy it, which uh, again is, is a, that's a process. I mean, it's, it's going to take you from scratch to getting, to getting a business, you know, it could take anywhere from, you know, nine months to, to two or three years, depending on what you're doing and how you go about it and everything else. But then once, once you acquire the business, then it's a matter of, Hey, now I got to run the business. It's not just buy, then sell at some point. It is in some cases, but that, that in-between piece is really challenging. And to your point, you know, I think a lot of people get hit in the, hit in the face pretty hard by that because they don't really think through, you know, the actual operational, how do we, how are we going to operate this business? I don't know anything about HVAC other than the fact that I have a, you know, furnace in my house, but I don't really know how it works and I don't really know how to repair. And, uh, you know, now I've got, a, a, I've got personnel issues and I've got, you know, payroll issues and I've got, you know, how this person's insurance, you know, might've lapsed or, or what, I mean, there's, there's so much to run in that business day to day that, you know, if you sleep on that, man, that you're going to, you're going to have big problems. Right. I mean, and I've watched people who, you know, I, I, I don't want to pick on the young folks, but occasionally, usually it's some young guy who says, man, I got this. I'm going to go buy this company and it's going to be amazing. And then they go and buy the company. And then it's like, you know, they, a year later I talked to them and they're just like, yeah, my entire staff turned over twice since I bought the company a year ago. And now they're in it right now. They're like, they're really working to, to run that business. And it's not producing the cash flow that they thought it was going to. And it's not, it's not as consistent and it's harder work than they thought it was going to be and all those things. Right. I mean, you know, the good news, the good news is that if you're using an SBA loan to acquire a business, and we can talk about that if you want to get into the details of that, but SBA loan failure rates are like less than 5%. Okay. Regular startup businesses fail at a rate of, you know, anywhere from 50 to 70 to 80%, whatever you want to believe. You know, there's stats out there all over the place that'll tell you that half of them are gone in a year, you know, 80% of them are gone in three years. The loan failure rate for SBA is much, 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 much lower. So it's, if you can, if you can bring a deal to the table that the bank agrees to and that, and that the SBA will fund, generally it's a pretty darn good deal, right? And, and if that's the case, then the failure rate of those is really, really low. I think I have a reason why behind that. Businesses okay. primarily fail for two reasons, especially in the startup phase. Number one, no market need. And number two, they run out of cash. So mm-hmm. if you're buying an existing business, it already has a marketing need. And I'm assuming if you're purchasing it, it's because it has good cash flow. Yeah. So like two things right, right there. Yeah, right? Right so that. you bring the SBA to the table and then they help you pull it across the line. Mm-hmm. So before we get into that, I want to ask you to help us avoid the landmines out there, too, because, you know, we've been on some calls. Everybody's like, there's this Amazon business that's printing money, you know, and I got to sign this deal within like the next two weeks. They're going to take it off the table or I just saw this thing post up and you're like, what's what's it's a balance, right? You want to be aggressive. You want to get a deal across the line. 
But I think if it's too good to be true, it, it probably, probably is. is. Right, right. Yeah, no, I think you're I think you're right, Mike. I think the 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 an interesting landmine that exists in the in the ETA space is that the the riskiness of a deal is inversely related to the size of the deal. And here's what I mean by that. Okay. A lot of people think that, oh, well, if I only borrow a hundred grand to buy a business, if I buy a business that that only costs me you know, 250, then I have less at risk. But if you do the math on, on a business, let's say a business that sells for $200,000, okay? Maybe it's trading at, at, it's selling at four times cash flow, okay? That means cash flow is 50 grand a year, okay? Just to make the math easy. So 50 grand a year means that less than $5,000 a month of ca- of extra cash is in that business, which means that if I'm going to make a bet to try and grow this business from making fifty grand a month and uh, fifty grand a year in cash flow to two hundred and fifty, if I try to make a bet, I could crater that company. Now I'm sweating payroll every month, right? Because there's not a whole lot of space in there to 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 make mistakes, right? So so the the unusual part of business acquisition is that in fact uh you know the the a company that's creating you know maybe a million dollars in ebitda every year a million dollars in cash every year is less risky than a business that's creating $200,000 a year in 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 ebitda because that it just it just has more room for 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 error if you will and 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 it seems counterintuitive, but I think a lot of people think, oh well, I'm gonna, you know, they start off their, and I've seen this happen dozens of times. They start off their search and like I'm gonna buy a company for two or three million bucks, and it's it's gonna be amazing, and it's gonna, it's I'm gonna be able to pay myself two hundred a year plus pay off my debt in ten years, and this is gonna be great. And then as they get through the, as they keep on the track to try and find a business. You know, more it's hard. Those are competitive businesses to buy. A business that's generating a million dollars a year in in cash is a hard business to buy because there's competition out there. And there are a lot of businesses out there that are barely, (laughs) barely making a business, right? They're barely creating cash. So they're creating 50 grand a year. They're creating 75 grand a year in cash. And those seem attractive because it's like, well, it's less risky to me, but no way, man. That means that. If it's if a business is creating fifty grand a year in cash, maybe it's it's done maybe five hundred thousand a year in sales. If that's the case, it probably doesn't have market fit yet. It's still trying to get to that million dollar mark of sales, and and I really find that those are very challenging. That's like that's like buying a startup, and and you kind of just doubled that. You know, not only did you, were you not willing to start your own company, but you bought somebody else's company that's still in the startup phase, and and you know you're going to inherit all their problems. So. <laughs> I'm telling y'all, man, this ain't no game. We've seen the faces of people, right? Mm-hmm. They're all energized to go buy a business. They buy a business. Next time you see them, their arm is broke. You know what I mean? <laughs> people look at right. right. You, you know, check on right. them. You're like, how's it going, man? They're just like, I had to dip into my savings to make payroll. Right. You know? Right. No doubt. And once yeah. you own that business, man, it gets serious. Yeah. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about was if I'm advising a founder and they have a business idea, Right. I try to avoid speculation as much as possible. It's like I want them to have founder product fit to use Silicon Valley terms. 
Are you the one to solve this particular problem for this particular industry? Does that apply as well to ETAs or is it a little bit different? Is it more about operational efficiency? Because you have a lot of old timers, little baby boomers. You know who I'm talking about. Go look at their small businesses. You walk in the back office, stacks of paper everywhere. They're like, (laughs) Google Docs, email. We don't use that stuff here. And you're just licking your lips. You're like, oh, man, I can I can get them going. So how do you think about what makes a good fit for an entrepreneur with regards to industry, et cetera? No, you're right. I think I think, you know, the 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 numbers work very well in the ETA space right now. Since about 2013, 14 or so, 10,000 baby boomers have been hitting 65 every every day. 10,000 baby boomers. Okay? So that means that they're now I don't think they're all retiring at 65, not if they're not if they're business owners, but some, you know, if the if they're not business owners, maybe they're retiring at 65, but 10,000 a day hitting that retirement age, you know, a lot of those guys are sticking around till they're 70, 75, 80. But there are a ton of businesses out there that are owned by baby boomers and they don't have a path out of it, man. They they are they are stuck in a spot where their kids are off doing what they do. They're raising their families, they're working for somebody else, or they have their own businesses or their own interests. They're not interested in dad's printing shop. They're not interested in dad's HVAC company that he that he started up 30, 40 years ago. They're not interested in in dad's, you know, machine shop that he's been that he's owned and, and he started from this garage back in the 80s. So because they they're off, you know, maybe they're, you know, trading stocks or they're, you know, you know, wealth managers or they're a, an attorney now or something like that. They have no interest in dad's company. So what does dad do? Dad's stuck, right? And and he's he's created a great company. He's tired. And and he's and he's running the way, the best way he knows how because he's he's been doing this for 40 years now. I think those are the companies man that are that are so so ripe for energy to be brought into them. They've already got a legacy that's been built. They've got a, a customer, you know, a customer base that's very loyal and and you know and and loyal beyond the owner, the the founder. Many many cases, they're loyal to a, an employee in the company, not necessarily the founder himself or herself. And I feel like those are the kind of companies that where where you can go in as a business owner and now just you know do some things to make it to your point to make it more operationally efficient. As opposed to, you know, creating a new offshoot of this business to serve a different market or, or any, like, you don't need to do that. You just need to take the business that's, that's there. You know, it was, it was funny when we bought the machine shop, we kind of joked before we, we closed the deal that all we really had to do was hide in a closet for 10 years and let this business pay down its debt for the next 10 years. And then we own a multiple million dollar business outright with no debt. Well, geez, that's that's a. I mean, if these businesses are that, you know, consistent and resilient, and and uh, you know, con- continue to consistently produce profit, then you know, a lot of times having you know a great idea, in what some way to change the business is probably pretty stupid. Frankly, you need to yeah. just make sure that what you're doing is you're doing efficiently, as opposed to creating you know, creating something new. And I hear this and I think about your experience, just how you used to talk about, you know, the machine shop, right? 
you were very much coming in with the understanding that you were trying to own a business, not run it. Right now, you'd already had experience, though. And I know a lot of times people come in and they just don't want to run it. They don't want to have to do any business work. They just want to sit there and print money. So I do think it's still a little bit of a balance. But I like the fact that I noticed that you were deliberate. You set up systems from the very beginning that would allow you to basically not be in the day to day weeds, you know, have that senior leader in place, et cetera. And so that's why, you know, we have these operating systems, you know. I think EOS is big in the ETA space. That's traction. You got scaling up. You got what we do at Flawless. But it's a great opportunity. And beyond the leadership, right, which we know a lot of veterans bring to the table, having led platoons or fire teams or whatever else, what do you think is the value prop for veteran entrepreneurs, aspiring veteran entrepreneurs and military spouses to these baby boomers and their businesses or ETAs in general? Yeah, I think I think that you know one of the main things that we bring to the table as veterans is a is a, a mindset of really caring about caring about our troops and caring about people. And I think if if you're if you're going to be a business owner, you know you need to really be you know wired right the way that you know typical veterans are for for you know taking care of your people. And so you know what I what I don't think exists, and I think it's Maybe it does in some ways, but the the unicorn of a completely hands off uh, absentee owner business, I think, is is not the kind of business is not realistic to go to assume you're going to go buy a, an absentee owner business, because even if it's being run absentee right now, it needs attention and it needs an owner who cares and who's going to be present, and frankly, an owner who's going to learn the business enough. So they're not getting hoodwinked by a team and, and, you know, they, they don't know what's going on in the business and they're vulnerable to their, to the, the activities of the day. So that's where things like EOS and, you know, a one page business plan, you know, operating system type thing really comes in to, to be very valuable. That's what, that's what um, we as leaders need to bring to the table is some way to, keep our finger on the pulse of that business and make sure that we know what's going on and, and that we can actually take care of that and, 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 and be aware of the KPIs in that business, the cash flow of that business and all the things that are important about running the business day to day. And, and that's where you create that system of accountability. You create a one page business plan, you create a meeting rhythm, a battle rhythm so that you know what's going on week to week and even morning to morning in the business. And then you create some kind of scoreboard system so that you know, you know, so that you and your team know what winning looks like. And, uh, and if you can do those things, I think those are the kind of, you know, that's not, that's definitely not an absentee owner, but it's also not somebody who's going in there and turning a wrench every day. You know, you have to have that, you know, you have to, a couple things. You have to show commander's intent. You have to have that battlefield circulation. And, you know, and then you have to have some system in place that supports your team and supports your ability to understand what's going on day to day. And here's something else I want to say, too. You know, when you're in the military, everybody tells us we're the best America has to offer. Right. And it's important. Service to country is important. I'm not downplaying that. But it is also very important to create a space for people to be gamefully employed and contribute to this economy and built families and stuff, et cetera. And I know a lot of veterans I come across and military spouses are excited about supporting their community in some way, whether it's 
hiring people. They want to start a business just so they can hire veterans. Or they want to start a nonprofit to help other veterans. And I think buying a business, keeping your staff gainfully employed, growing it, creating opportunities for others, that could be a great social mission for a lot of people out there. No, you're absolutely right, Mike. I think that that when I look at business ownership, you know, some people some people look at it through the lens of, oh my gosh, I'm now responsible for all these people's mortgages. And I look at it as, holy cow, I now get to help these people have mortgages, right? So so if you think about, you know, what what does that look like? And you supporting the economy and you helping build this 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 ecosystem of of employees who are contributing to to not just your company, but also to the to the overall, you know, greater good in the economy. I mean, man, what better way to to serve your community and to serve people and that sort of thing? I think it's just really powerful. Great stuff. So as we start to close out here, Jeff, I'm gonna ask you a question. What's your B what's your BHAG, that big hair audacious goal that you're working towards? And how does this ETA space play into that? Yeah, so I so I dreamt this up a couple of years ago because I feel like I've been blessed that I've been able to create generational wealth through business ownership and 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 being successful in that space. And so what I really want to do with my life, Mike, is I want to spend the next 25 years building generational wealth for other people. And I feel like the best way to do that is to help them run their businesses in a successful way that generates cash flow that allows them to support their employees and and help their employees own homes and own cars and go on great vacations and all those things and then also to help help other help other veterans especially but also you know anybody who wants to who I'm who's who's interested in talking to me but help people buy businesses and help that helps the the baby boomer who's who's been running this business for 35 or 40 years gives them an exit path so that they can monetize and and actually recognize that that generational wealth that they've created over the years and then it also gives that new business owner the opportunity to create wealth for themselves down the road so i want to create a billion dollars with a b of generational wealth over the next 25 years for other people and i think the best way to do that is through business acquisition and coaching people who are business owners to have to to lead great businesses and lead great lives. We've got veteran entrepreneurs and military spouses tuning in from all over the country, all over the world. You've given us so much today. How can we as a community help you reach that BHAG? Wow, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, I appreciate your audience, right? The the fact that you have a reach, the reach that you do, Mike, is really impressive and and humbling. And so I'm happy to help any of those folks in their journeys and whether that results in a, in a, in a coaching engagement or just results in, a, in meeting some really cool person and, and helping them move on, it doesn't really matter to me, honestly. Yeah, I would say if you're interested in, in talking with me, great, come, come talk to me. I'd be happy to, uh, to help guide you. Like I said, if it, if it results in a, in a coaching uh, relationship, great. If it just results in me getting to meet really cool people, that's great too. So, you know, I, I wish, I wish anybody in transition, anybody who served our country, you know, all the best. And I, and I want to help them in whatever way I can. Thanks, Mike. Where can people find you? How can they reach you? Yeah. So, you know, there we'll, we'll put my contact information in the show notes. My website is thayergateproject.com, T-H-A-Y-E-R, thayergateproject.com. And, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, 
And uh, I'm an old guy, so I'm not quite out there on TikTok or Instagram yet, but you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> well, Jeff, we appreciate having you on the platform. Like you said, we'll put the link to your website in the show notes. To all our listeners, we appreciate you tuning in with us today. Until next time, peace, love. Have a great rest of your week, everyone. Peace.